that said, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're not there already, which given the number of announcements, I imagine you're already there. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. I, time prohibits me from reading the entire chapter. This really comes together, but I'll just read verses 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that you would bless this, your word, in the hearing of us, your people. We ask that your Son would speak to us by the Spirit as the Word is preached. We ask that you would guard my lips so that I might speak the truth. And that alone, we ask that you would work powerfully in our hearts and minds so that we might look more and more to Christ. We are thankful for the grace of faith. It is an excellent gift in which we receive Christ. We pray that you would give us clarity of mind. You would soften our hearts. That we would look to Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. The front end of this sermon is going to sound a bit political, but I don't intend for it to be political, other than to survey what we all know is happening If you're paying attention to our current cultural moment, you recognize that Christians have lost the sexual revolution in America. If you don't recognize that, then you haven't paid much attention to the fact that it was not long ago that it was considered sane to consider a man a man and a woman a woman, and it was seemingly overnight that you were a bigot if you thought differently. Things have just changed. Christian voices are now bigoted voices. Those voices whose speech ought to be suppressed as as hate speech, in fact. We have bought the LGBTQ ideology in every major cultural institution, from government agencies to corporations, sports entertainment, and schools, all the way down to kindergarten. Even the conservative presidential candidate touts himself in a commercial as the most pro-LGBTQ president in history. Now, you don't have to be very old to imagine it wasn't long ago that that wouldn't have been said by anybody. Things have changed. We have a therapeutic identity culture that sees everything in terms of oppressor, and oppressed. There's no more objective truth, morality nor virtue. There's only power. It isn't, did I in fact sin against you? It is, do you feel oppressed by me? We have a culture that now defines sex and race around social constructs rather than around fixed immutable characteristics. 
We have a proposition on the ballot in California, because I've seen it. I'm not going to tell you my view on it, except it's Prop 16. It's a constitutional amendment that allows for discrimination based on race and sex. They, the contention is that it is only racist or sexist to show bias toward a particular race or sex and against a particular race or sex if that race or sex is considered among the, the oppressed. But if that race or sex is among the oppressors, then it's not racist nor sexist to oppose them. Abortion is widely accepted under the law, even up to the day of birth. We have a culture that is incapable of seeing one another based on our common humanity. I, I don't think social media has been of much help to this. We, we are tribalized in a sort of dangerous fashion. The other is not an image bearer of God, a human. The other is the opposition, the enemy. Meanwhile, it seems folks just accept the notion that the First Amendment only guarantees particular rights when the government says so. Those rights are no longer seen as given by God and protected by government. They're now seen as the prerogative of government. Here's my point. The world in which we live has rapidly changed. Rapidly changed. It would have, it has, it's done so, so fast, probably faster than any of us imagined it would. And I think many Christians are in denial. In fact, I think most are in shock. But friends, all is not lost. And when I say, say all is not lost, I'm not about to give you a political rally cry. I'm, we're not gonna all, I'm not going to hand out MAGA hats after this is over. That's not the point. What you are now experiencing has been the lot of Christians throughout history. Yes, in many ways the Lord was merciful to Christians in America for many years, and of course we should pray he is again. We're told, in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, to pray that our governing authorities govern in such a manner that the church has peace, that's free to live in peace and godliness. But whatever we walk through, we walk through on the basis, now hear this, whatever we walk through, including this current moment, we walk through on the basis of God's kind providence. His invisible hand is at work in all that you see. See, I know my rundown of our current cultural moment seems pessimistic and negative, and you wonder, how could God be kindly at work in all of this? My point isn't to be pessimistic. My point isn't to be negative. My point is to say that we need to wake up and see the reality that's right in front of us and rest our faith and hope upon the right foundation. And the right foundation is not a better America. It's not. The right foundation is not a better state than California. It's not. The right foundation is not a great outcome in an election that you're thankful for. It's just not. The right foundation is our Lord Jesus Christ and our eternal hope in him. That's the right foundation.
Folks, Christ is building his church. He is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. COVID-19 will not prevail against Christ's church. The LGBTQ movement, the therapeutic culture, the rising socialist movement, the pro-abortion advocates, the apocalyptic climate change predictions will not prevail against Christ's church. Even if laws are passed to begin to cause Christians to be imprisoned and silenced or to lose their livelihoods, which it seems like we might be there now, they will not prevail against Christ's church. If all the powers of America, the most powerful nation the world has ever known, were aligned against the church, the church would continue to march forward by the gracious will of God. Why do the people's plot and the nations rage in vain against the Lord and against his Messiah. Why do they? Because they don't know him. But God has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And we look to him. We look to him. But here's the thing. It takes God-given faith to believe that. It just does. It takes faith to believe in the Lord when the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil arise, when the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. It takes faith to rest there. John Owen, the um, great 17th century Puritan congregationalist, said this, it is faith alone that takes believers out of this world while they are in it, that exalts them above it while they are under its rage, that enables them to live upon things future and invisible. It takes faith. It is not easy to persevere in faith when the world is aligned against you as Christians. It's hard enough to fight against your own flesh and the devil. But we are commanded to persevere in the faith. We're urged to endure in faith. There's a little bit of a, I I think, let me say, a little bit of a critique I'm going to give for the way we break the Bible into chapters and verses. You all know the chapters and verses are not originally there. They're added later. And in the addition of them, sometimes they can cause us mentally, I think they're helpful overall, but sometimes they can cause us mentally to divorce one section of Scripture from another. So if you look at Hebrews 11.1 and it says, Now faith... You've divorced it from Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. Um, And so look at verse 39. Understand why he's going there. But we, he's saying to the church, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We're not of those who turn to ourselves, who become self-righteous, who look away from the Lord, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Do you see the connection? He's just told us, we need to persevere in the faith. And now the apostle's saying, so what is faith? If you're supposed to persevere in it, what is it? Do we have any examples of people before us who persevered in the faith? And he's going to go on to define what faith is, though not comprehensively. He's going to define what faith is, and he's going to go on 
to give you example after example throughout the history of the church, if you will, in the Old Test- among the Old Testament saints, of how they persevered in the faith. And what the apostles after is showing you the excellency of faith. He wants to, you to see how excellent faith is. He has encouraged you to persevere, to endure in faith. Now he's showing you how excellent faith really is so that you are desiring to persevere. Now the apostle wants you to understand three truths that demonstrate the excellency of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And by the way, so you know, all three of these truths will go through the entirety of Hebrews chapter 11, particularly the second and third truth I'm going to address this morning. There are three truths that we'll come back to again and again. So what are they? The first one is the acts of faith. Here's how faith acts. The second one is the effects of faith. Here's what comes about as a result of justifying or saving faith. And the third one is the reward of faith. Here's how God rewards faith. Now we're going to see all three of these as we walk through Hebrews 11, uh, 1 through 2 this morning. But the second and third one particularly as we go through the rest of this chapter. But I want you to understand that the whole chapter, the whole of Hebrews 11, is given to prove that these these three truths regarding the excellencies of faith. That's what it's given for. So let's look first at the first one, the acts of faith. I'll spend the majority of my time on the acts of faith this morning, and then um, in the coming weeks we'll look at, in more detail, the evidence and reward. The acts of faith. There are two acts of faith. I want you to hear them. They're in these parallel statements. Now, faith is. We're going to get a definition. This is an equative or stative verb. Um, Esten in the Greek is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's the first thing you're told. And the second one you're told, the conviction of things not seen. I want to define what those are. Let me put it this way. The two acts of faith are this. One, an open hand. An open hand. And two, an enlightened heart. Did you hear that? Two acts of faith. An open hand and an enlightened heart. So let's look at the open hand. What do I mean by an open hand? What do I mean by that? What I mean is that God-given faith, saving faith, justifying faith, faith that is a gift of God's grace, is, as Luther said, like the open hand of a beggar. It's like an open hand of a beggar. We receive Christ and his gracious benefits with an open hand. And our faith closes on him. Closes on him. We put out our hand like a beggar. And when we're given Christ through faith, our hand closes on him so that we really take hold of him. We receive Christ and his gracious benefits with that open hand. Look at the language of Hebrews 11.1. Now faith, first phrase, when I'm saying an open hand, is the assurance of things hoped for. And you're going to say, what does that phrase have to do with an open hand? The Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Well, I'm persuaded that the translation in the ESV that I'm reading from is too subjective. It's not the right choice. Um, The King James Version, actually in this text, I think gets it better when they translate it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the hypostasis in in Greek. It's the same language we hear in Hebrews 1, 3. 
when he says that Christ is the substance, the Son is the substance of the Father. What does that mean? I mean, it just sounds a little bit mysterious. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. What does that even mean? It means that through the instrumentality of faith, you have the reality in some manner. manner. You really have Christ in some way. It really mean, it means that, that faith is not really just looking forward to Christ, if you will, but that he's already mine. He's really mine. He's substantively mine. That's true, actually, in two ways. First, it's true in that I have a right and title to Christ and his benefits by faith. In other words, by faith, I am a true heir. It is true. It is real. God makes promises, namely promises of eternal inheritance, right? A promise that God will be our God and we will be his people. That's true, and I actually have that by faith. A promise that he'll forgive us of our sins and count us righteous in Christ so that we will dwell with him forever. That's true, and I actually have that by faith. That's a real thing. Look, look at Hebrews 11.7. Hebrews 11.7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. See, they're unseen because they have not yet occurred in history. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, Noah, by faith, was an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He actually had that. Though he did not yet see its realization, he had it by faith. It was his, really, substantially. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Keep your hand there, and then we'll look at 1 Peter 1 in just a second. But Hebrews chapter 6, and look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly, now notice this, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. See, God made a promise, and he attended to it with an oath, that we would be the heirs of righteousness by faith. And we have that thing by faith. We have that promise. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Keep your hands in Hebrews 11. Look over at 1 Peter. It's the next book. Actually, it's James and then 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, caused us to be born again. That means we're in the new creation. He's caused us, past tense, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance. Notice, you've been caused to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded 
through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have it by title, by inheritance, if you will. We have right and title to it. Second, um, when I say that, it's, that we have the subsistence, if you will, I want to say this. I have a real subsistence. I know you're not used to hearing that kind of language. It's, it's actually what's happening in the Greek language here, though. I have a real subsistence of Christ and his benefits by faith. What do I mean by that? I mean that by faith, I really have Christ and his benefits. It's real. It's real. He is mine, and I am his. Some, some of why this becomes difficult language for us to get a hold of is because we live in a culture, um, maybe, maybe I should say this way, post-William of Ockham. If you don't know who William of Ockham is, that's okay. Um, but we, ha- we live in a culture post-William of Ockham where he has so radically changed the nature of the way we see the world that we, we don't know how to get a hold of this language. What, how did he do that? Well, he really proffered something called nominalism. I'm not going to give you an entire philosophy lesson here, but I'm just going to give you just the, the, the quick breakdown. He championed a philosophy called nominalism, which most of us now believe. Nominalism is the idea it, it, that something is named, therefore that's how you know what it is. I'm making it as simple as I can, and there's not nearly enough nuance. So that chair is a chair because we called it a chair. Not because there is a thing called a chair and we always recognize it because there's something called chairness. It isn't really chair. It's a chair because we named it such. A woman is a woman because we called her a woman. You can see how nominalism, by the way, is showing up in our culture. Not because there's actually a thing called a woman that's real. A womanness in which women participate and manness in which men participate. But it is what we call it. So if I want to rename it something else, then I can. So we think about our faith in Christ that way. I somehow have named Christ to be mine, so he's mine, if you will, by faith in the naming of him to be mine, but he's not really mine. I don't really have him by faith. And what the text is saying is not just that it's because you say you're born again or saved that you are because you've named it that. What it's saying is you really participate in Christ you're actually united to him. Really, truly, mystically united to him. He is yours, and you are his. It's not just a legal fiction in which God has declared you righteous by Christ. It is an actual union with Christ in which God declares you righteous because you're united to his son. And so his righteousness is really yours. And you're really his. This is the kind of language you hear all the time. I've really been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit through faith. I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13-14. The Father and Son have made their home in me by the Spirit. John fourteen twenty three. I have been crucified with Christ. And yet I live, not I, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with him, yet I live. Not I, but Christ who lives within me. The old man is really dead. And the new man is really alive in Christ Jesus. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not he will be someday a new creation. He is a new creation. That's why Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection that really belongs to you. I am presently, Ephesians 2, 6, seated with Christ in heavenly places. Not someday I'll be seated with Christ in heavenly places. I am presently seated with Christ in heavenly places. I have received him. I have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. I am a co-heir with Christ, an adopted child of the Father, and the Spirit bears witness in me of that truth, Romans 8, 16 through 17. See, faith is an open hand that closes on Christ, and he is ours now and forever. Faith is not just a belief that someday he'll be mine, but it is the substance of things hoped for. It gives subsistence to those things in some manner so that those things are really mine right now. And I say in some manner, I, I can't define it beyond that. They're really mine right now. Not just they will be mine someday, they really are mine right now, and they will be fully mine someday. So the first act of faith is an open hand that really receives Christ and his benefits. That's why it's an encourage, you're encouraged to persevere in faith. It's not just someday you'll have something. It's right now you have him. Right now. The second act of faith is an enlightened heart. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 again. We'll look at the second part. Now faith, really, I think, better translated, is the substance of things hoped for. You have those things that are hoped for right now in some way. And notice the next phrase, the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen is is a way of saying the proof, or even better, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. What are the things not seen? Well, I mean, you're going to say, this sounds a bit redundant. The things not seen are invisible things. They are things you don't see, right? Now, they're invisible in two ways. You don't see them, if you will, in two ways. Or there, maybe there are two types of invisible things. What do I mean by that? They, there are invisible realities that are such by nature. They are just invisible. That's what their nature is. So you think of God. God is spirit, and thus God is invisible. Right? Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 27. Look at verse 27. There's something that's invisible by nature. By faith, he, that's being Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Not because one day he would see him who is invisible, but because he was seeing. He endured as one seeing him who is invisible. So there are things that are invisible by nature. There are also things that are invisible in the sense that they are not yet seen. 
as there are still future things, things to come. So look at Hebrews eleven seven again with Noah. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. See, um, Noah did not presently see them in the sense that they had taken place, but he did see them by faith. These are things that are historically not having happened yet, but they aren't by nature invisible. The flood was a visible thing. Right? We really saw it. It's not the kind of thing that's generally appropriate for your nursery at home. <laughs> you know, here, this is a scene where God floods the whole world in our kids' nursery and kills everybody in anger and wrath. Right? Welcome to the world, little one. Be warned, right? <laughs> All right. The point is you're trusting in what your eyes cannot presently look upon. You're trusting in what your eyes cannot presently look upon. This act of faith provides supernatural, spiritual sight to see what you're unable to see naturally. Naturally. It, it's seen only by the gracious work of God. The Lord must give you the gracious faith, if you will, to see. Look at Hebrews 10.32. Look at the language. When I say an enlightened heart, Hebrews 10.32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. See, you were enlightened. You saw the truth. The lights were turned on. Before that, your eyes were darkened. Now they see the light. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is perhaps one of the more compelling passages in this regard. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 3. Paul's talking about preaching the gospel, making an open statement of truth, and look what he says. And even if our gospel is veiled, unable to be seen, hidden in some way, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, now listen to this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's your problem as an unbeliever. You are unable to see. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. And you don't have that evidence. You can't see it as an unbeliever. Your mind is darkened. You're not able to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You can't see it. Now what God does in giving you the grace of faith is that God, the God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who said, light be, and then the universe had light, it was, that same God who did that act of creation now does an act of recreation in you. He speaks into your darkness, light be, and you're enlightened. You see, and you know Christ is. It's not just an intellectual ascent like, oh, I agree, it's true. It's that, when you have the grace of faith, you know Christ is yours. You have him by substance. I don't mean you feel it all the time. 
I mean you know it's true. And you have the evidence of it. You see Christ as clearly as you see the person sitting next to you. He's yours. You're his. It's evidence that you see by the grace of God, but that once you did not see. We sing about this. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Was grace, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. See, so we walk by faith and not by sight. But the supernatural sight we have, the enlightened hearts we have, see the truth clearly. But friends, the gracious work of God giving us faith is that as he grows us in faith, as he grows us in faith, because some have weaker faith, some have stronger faith, and God is the one who gives the increase to that. But as he grows us faith in the sight of Christ and his grace, the vision of the reward to come begin to eclipse all that you can see with your natural sight. The things of this world look dimmer still. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now this work of grace that faith does by giving us Christ and all his benefits has particular effects. Those are the acts. The acts are that you have an open hand in which you really receive him. The acts are that you have an enlightened heart in which you have an evidence of the truth regarding him. And this is the second point, really, the effects of faith. What are the effects of faith? Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 2. For by it, by the way, by faith, by it, the people of old received their commendation. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. The by it, it is a reference to faith, by faith, the people of old. The people of old, it's the same term, by the way, used in Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, the presbyteroi here. He spoke to the people of old by the prophets. We translate it not fathers here, and we don't translate it fathers here because you're going to hear about Sarah and Rahab and some of these women. So we translate it the people of old. It's a reference to Old Testament saints. For by faith, the people of old, the Old Testament saints, received their commendation. The people of old are those who believed the promise of the coming Christ in the Old Testament. They had faith in Christ. So they had Christ and his benefits as well. Now you might be surprised to hear that. You might be surprised to hear that. You may not. But Jesus told Jewish unbelievers, Jewish unbelievers, that their failure to believe in him made them unlike Abraham. He actually says, you're not children of your father, Abraham. 
because you don't do what your father Abraham did. What did Abraham do? He says that their failure to believe in him, the Christ, makes them not children of Abraham because Abraham believed in him. Listen to what he said. Your father Abraham, listen to the past tense, John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, how did Abraham, who came uh, 2,000 years before Christ, how did he see Christ's day and so rejoice? He saw it by faith. He saw it by faith. He had Christ by faith. He had Christ by faith just as Moses had Christ by faith. Look at Hebrews eleven twenty six. Speaking of Moses, he considered, Hebrews eleven twenty six. speaking of Moses, he, that's Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of Egypt. The Old Testament saints had Christ and his benefits by faith. Listen, justification is only ever by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Old Testament saints were declared righteous by faith. By faith in who? The Christ. In promise. Those who consumed the manna in the wilderness in faith ate the body of Christ in the wilderness by faith. John chapter 6. Go read it. Jesus says, I am the manna came down from heaven. You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Shocking to people. Those same folks in the wilderness drank of Christ by faith when they thirsted and drank from the rock in the wilderness by faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The rock that was in the wilderness through which the people drank is Christ. Christ was really present, ministering to them by the Spirit through faith. And this whole chapter, Hebrews 11, is setting out to show you the effects faith in Christ had upon those Old Testament believers in Christ and to show you the reward of their faith, so that you might persevere in faith as they did. So you might follow their example. Look look at just some of the effects of saving faith. Chapter 11 and verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, notice the effect, in reverent fear. He had a reverent fear. Look at 11.8. By faith, Abraham obeyed. You hear the effect? Reverent fear, obedience. Look at 11.24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth wealth and the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. Moses took on long-suffering, And sacrifice, in fact, we can see that in verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, 
not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So reverent fear, obedience, long-suffering, sacrifice, endurance, love for the brethren. Look at verse 31 of chapter 11. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She knew they were God's covenant people, and she loved God's covenant people. She loved the brethren. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these things, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. All these, sorry, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised because Christ had not yet come in history. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See it? You see the effects of faith in these people's lives? Even in Christ in hope and joy. But I want to move on to the rewards of faith as we're going to spend several weeks going through each of these Old Testament characters and looking at the effects of faith in their lives. The reward of faith, verse 2, look back at Hebrews chapter 2 again, or 11, sorry. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2. For by it the people of old, notice the last phrase, received their commendation. To receive their commendation is a reference to them being commended by the Lord. In the Greek, it's literally the Lord witnessed to them in some way. Not witnessed to them in that he told them the gospel, but witnessed to them in that he held them up in front of other people as examples of faith. He commended them. He honored their names. He's held them up in Scripture as a godly example of faith for us. They received a commendation from the Lord. You might receive that or say that through faith they received a good name. Remember the Tower of Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves? And God scattered them, and then in Genesis 12, God tells Abram, I will make your name great. Right, you don't seek a name for yourself, I'll give you a good name. You might say in this sense, they received a good name by faith in Christ. They were honored by faith. We're told in Hebrews eleven six that only faith pleases God. 
Only faith is acceptable. Why is that? Because faith alone looks away from self into Christ. Faith alone does that. Faith trusts the Lord Jesus Christ rather than ourselves. It's not the virtue of your faith, but the object of your faith that God rewards. He gave you the grace of faith, and now through that faith, you look to the object, Christ, who is your righteousness. Now, God does commend you for a persevering faith as he did many Old Testament saints. But I want you to notice what they're commended for. They weren't commended, co- commended for their courage, their wisdom, their intellect, their good looks. They weren't commended for how their children turned out, how great their parenting was, how honorable their marriage happened to be. They weren't commended for standing for justice or fighting the wicked or what have you. Yes, they did many of these things, and yes, those things were good and virtuous. But it's because they did them by faith that they were commended. It's because they did them by faith that they were commended. Ultimately, they were commended for trusting in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you talk about. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. I'm thinking of the Princess Bride now. Sorry, I have to stop myself. <laughs> I apologize. Doesn't matter um, which one of them you're talking about. These are great philosophers, yet their wisdom did not bring them approval with God. It did not. Only faith in Christ brings approval with God. God is well pleased with those who have his son by faith. Why? Because God is well pleased with his son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And when you have him by faith, he's pleased with you. And with the commendation of their names, they receive the reward, these people, these Old Testament folks. They receive that. And the reward is heaven. The reward is eternal life. It's dwelling with God forever. You might say um, that, yes, you might say, but we haven't received the kingdom of God the kingdom of Christ, in its consummate glory yet. And that's true, and neither have they in its consummate glory, the kingdom of Christ. You're correct, but by faith, you receive Christ's grace. And I want you to hear this. Christ's grace is but the infant which grows into glory. Grace is the acorn. Glory is the oak tree. You have the kingdom of Christ by grace through faith, but you will one day have the kingdom of Christ in full glory and by sight. So, Sovereign Grace, here's the thing I want to encourage you with. When the world seems a mess, which it does, and you're not sure how things will go here for us, which we're not, look to Christ and your reward in him. Look to Christ and reward in him. William Perkins, really the, one of the fathers of what became English Presbyterianism and Scottish Presbyterianism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, etc., He said this about the fact that God rewards faith in Christ. This is what he said. He said, the fact that God rewards faith in Christ is a storehouse of comforts for all true professors of this faith. Are you poor? Your faith makes you rich in God. Are you simple and of mean reach? Your faith is true wisdom before God. Are you in any way deformed? Faith makes you beautiful unto God. Are you weak, feeble, or sick? Your faith makes you strong in God. 
Are you base in the world and of no account? Your faith makes you honorable in the sight of God and his holy angels. Thus you are poor and foolish and deformed and sick and base in the world. But mark how God has recompensed you. He has given you faith, whereby you are rich and beautiful and wise and strong and honorable in heaven with God. Faith is the true riches, the sound strength, the lasting beauty, the true wisdom, the true honor of a Christian man. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for the gift of faith that we have that looks to your Son. We give thanks that you are gracious to us in the sending of Christ and in the sending of your Spirit so that we might be united to Christ through faith and so have him and all his benefits. Cause us to look full in his wonderful face. Cause us to really be the people for whom the world begins more and more by faith to look strangely dim as we look to the glory and grace of Christ. Cause our infant faith to grow into maturity and glory. We know that you and you alone can do this. We trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.